Well, you can turn your Bibles to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 22, we'll be looking at verses 24, and, or I'm sorry, there is no 24, 14 and 15 this morning. We're getting to the last page of my Bible. I don't know how yours is divided up, but this is uh, kind of exciting, getting to the end of Revelation here as we make our way through this wonderful book of the Bible, uh, verse by verse, we have been uh, traveling through this incredible book that is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we saw uh, last time, or talked about last time, how you really have an incomplete understanding of who Jesus is without the book of Revelation, hence, hence the title of the book. It's the revelation of of Jesus Christ. It's not the revelation of the tribulation or the revelation of uh, the Antichrist. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we have been seeing that primarily this book is really uh, can be summed up. The purpose of the book we can find in Revelation 21 in verse 5. Behold, Jesus says, Behold, I am making all things new. And the book of Revelation reveals to us the steps through which God will make all things new through the person of Jesus Christ. And how he is solving, or he has solved, our number one issue, which isn't who the president is or who it's going to be in 2024. It's not our number one problem isn't uh, a coup in Russia or high taxes or something like that. Our number one problem is sin. And Jesus Christ dealt with that problem on the cross in his death, burial, and resurrection. And through doing that, he makes it possible for life to be the way God originally created it to be in the Garden of Eden. And so he is making all things new, and the book of Revelation reveals how that's going to happen. And so we've made our way through our outline, and if you're really keen, you notice that I made a change this, this week uh, and separated off the section that we are in now, have been, since about verse 8, the prologue of the book. Yes, this is still looking at the, or it's still taking place in the eternal state, but we're really drawing the book to a close here in these final verses, verses 8 through 21, uh, where what it says in my uh, Bible, beginning in verse 10, has a header that says the final message. And that is, that is exactly what, that it, what this is. I would have put that in the top of verse 8, but, you know, that's just my opinion. <laughs> uh, but the, we're in the prologue where we are getting a kind of a summation, really, of why uh, God can do these things. Why Christ is qualified to do the things that he is doing and that he is going to do. And we saw that uh, last time and was kind of wrapped up in this idea of why we should obey. Why should we obey God's word to us, it's very, it should be imminently, perfectly clear that God wants us as believers to be holy people. There shouldn't be any uh, question about that. 
And we looked into why some of the reasons uh, why we should be motivated to obey. We see that here in the book of Revelation. And that's not unusual for prophecy to have connected to it godly living. In fact, it's not unusual uh, because that's the way it is every time in the Bible. People like to disregard prophecy as something that is divisive or we just can't agree on it and so let's just not even talk about it. Well, there's a problem with that because when God reveals future events to us, He's always doing it to motivate His people to be godly. We see that in Ezekiel that Mike is presenting to us in uh, Sunday school through the summer here, he's, uh, it is very obvious that God is telling them that judgment is coming in the future because he wants them to be godly. You need to repent, change your ways, turn from, turn from your wickedness and, and agree with me. That's what, it, that's what it means to repent. Change your mind about these things that you're doing and be godly because God is godly. Be holy because I am holy. That is always the message that is that follows uh, the revelation of prophecy. And that's what we have in the book of Revelation is, is the revealing of future events that are going to take place. And this book isn't written to future generations when the events are taking places, when these events will take place. They're written to the churches and we are a church. This book is written to us, even though you know it has to the church at Ephesus and Smyrna and these various churches. Yes, the original was written to them, but it is completely, totally, 100% applicable to you and me in its message. God wants us to be holy because he's going to do these things. Uh, we saw last time in verse... 10, that John was told not to seal up the words of this prophecy. This is for the time is near. The, the, it is the next event on the horizon is God doing these things. You know, back here, way back here in the beginning of uh, creation, God's return to the earth wasn't an imminent event. Uh, a whole lot of things had to happen before God was going to uh, bring about the events that we're seeing here in the book of Revelation. One of those was the giving of the law. He had, to, he, or he had to make a nation, first off. He wanted to make a nation through which he could reveal himself, through which he could, uh, the scriptures could come. A nation that would be separate from the nations around him, that he could teach the world how to be holy by having this nation and separating it off. And oh yeah, a savior could come from that nation as well. That was God's design, that the savior of the world, the one who is going to save us from our sins would come from this one nation. And, and we learn all kinds of lessons uh, from them in the Old Testament and we see that Christ did come at the exact proper time, according to Galatians 4, Jesus Christ came into the world exactly when he was supposed to, to live a perfect life, give himself as a sacrifice for our sins, as we read in John 10 this morning, that he would be the one 
giving his life. The Romans didn't take it from him. The Jewish people didn't put him on the cross. In fact, Jesus put himself on the cross and died for our sins and rose again so that we could get to this place, the eternal state where we are living in perfect fellowship with God without sin and all of its consequences being a barrier to us. After his death, burial, and resurrection, we have this church age that we are living in today, the time when this letter was written. In fact, all of our books of of the New Testament were written in this uh, church age period in which we are living, that we know one day is going to come to an end, we believe, with the rapture of the church, uh, and this church age will end, and then these events that we see in the book of Revelation will begin to take place. That's why uh, Jesus, and throughout the book of Revelation, we see, particularly in this prologue, these closing verses, that the time is near. The time is near because it is the next thing to happen. It is imminent. It was imminent 2,000 years ago. It's imminent today because this is next. This is the culmination of history itself is on the precipice of happening at any moment. This, this, these, this final, these final acts of human history will take place. And that's why it says the time is near. And when it happens, it's also going to happen very quickly. We, we discussed uh, that in some detail earlier. And we saw the reason why uh, that we, that, and also we saw last time that we will have these rights to the uh, tree of life, right to enter into, uh, into the new Jerusalem. And the reason why Uh, essentially, we are going to be judged. Verse 12, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. We looked at the various judgments, and we, we saw the reason why Jesus Christ is able to do this is because these three reasons at least listed here in our passage, verse 13, I am the Alpha in the Omega, he's the first letter and the last letter and all of them in, in between and every combination we saw, he is the word, like it says in John 1, 1. He's the first and the last. He is the, he is the plan. Jesus Christ is the plan from the, before the foundation of the world all the way through human history and all the way to the end. He is the one who will fulfill these things. Which is what is the point with I am the beginning and the end. These actually aren't, they don't mean, all three of these don't mean the same thing. God isn't just repeating himself here when he says I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last and the beginning and the end. The beginning and the end means that he's kind of the chief of all things and, and the fulfiller of all things. Through him, all of these events will take place and life will be restored the way that it was originally intended to be. Which brings us to today, verses 14 and 15 in Revelation 22. It says, Blessed are those who wash their robes 
so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. So there is a, there is a definite distinction. This seems to be rather black and white. The world doesn't like things that are black and white. We like to dwell in the gray, it would seem, you know, oh, what's true for you isn't true for me. What's true for me isn't true for you. And we'll just uh, have a campfire and sit around and have a wonderful time. The Bible, on the other hand, tends to be black and white, right and wrong, good and evil. And our world isn't like that. Uh, At least that's the way we would like, or many people would like us to think that the world isn't like that. In fact, the world is exactly the opposite of the way the Bible uh, lays it out. But the fact of the matter is that there is a distinction. There is one group of people who are in and are blessed, it says here in the text. They are into the eternal state. They will live with God in perfect harmony and perfect fellowship. And there is another group of people who are out. They are outside of the new Jerusalem, outside of the eternal state. They have a different existence. And notice that they they are mentioned here. Even in this eternal state, they are still there. And they are outside of the blessing of God. And there's a reason why. So are you in or are you out? That's our question for this morning. And we'll look at the robes, the rights, and the reason why these people are actually ruled out and kind of the implication of that. But we begin with the robes there in verse 14. First part of the verse says, Blessed are those who wash their robes in the NASB. Anyway, most English versions have a translation that's very, very similar to that doesn't quite capture exactly what is being uh, stated there. But notice that first word, this is uh, blessed, makarios in the Greek is the Greek term. And it's the same, uh, the Latin version of that word is where we get our term for beatitude. And if you'll remember, there are seven blessing statements or seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. And this is the last one. We've made it to the last blessing statement. And uh, some translations will, when we see this word or have the word makarios in the Greek, they'll translate it as happy or something along those lines. Blessed, we see a lot of times, of course, the Beatitudes that we're familiar with uh, from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, often misunderstood. And we think... We have a tendency to think anyway that being blessed is to be happy and uh, to have everything is going my way. Have a blessed day. And when somebody says that to you, uh, they may not realize uh, the consequences of what they're saying. But the intention is, you know, hey, well, you know, just have a great day. It's kind of a Christianese, spiritualese way of saying, you know, have a nice day. Uh, God bless you and these kinds of things. And that's, that's, all, that's all nice. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that a, that a being blessed 
by God doesn't necessarily mean that your 401k is good. You've got all your bills are paid, two cars in the garage, a nice house with a white picket fence and everything is, is wonderful. That is not the meaning of a blessing in scripture. They are, uh, we have the tendency to look at our outward circumstances as being, you know, determining whether or not we are blessed. And that is, that is completely uh, false. Things are going well. Well, obviously I'm being blessed and, and everything is, everything is good between me and God because things are going well in my life. We also have the tendency to think the opposite way. Things are going poorly in my life. Uh Oh, what have I done? What kind of sin is in my life? Where is there a barrier between me and myself and God? I've got to get this straightened out. And that isn't necessarily correct. Neither one of those are necessarily uh, correct. Some, it, they may be. Perhaps that's true. Perhaps God is blessing you because you're being obedient to Him and you reap some kind of material blessing because of that. Uh, perhaps you have some sin in your life and that's why things are uh, not going correctly, but that's not necessarily the case. There are a couple of really good examples from the scriptures. I think of the rich man in the, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man certainly seemed to be blessed. In this life, that was the tendency in Jewish thinking. That's why Jesus tells the, the parable or the story of the rich man and Lazarus because the, in Pharisaical Judaism, that's the exact kind of concept that they had. If you are a wealthy person, you are being blessed by God. And so this is why James, in the book of James, he warns the people, hey, when a rich person comes in, don't necessarily assume that they're blessed by God and put them in the front row and honor them and all these kinds of things. And the poor guy, you know, keep him in the back. He obviously has some issues and isn't being blessed. Jesus says, no, that's not the case. Yes, this person has wealth in this life. Guess what? He ends up in the fire when he when he dies and this poor man Lazarus is spiritually blessed and he is in the bosom of Abraham when he dies essentially the rich man goes to hell to put it in 21st century christian language Lazarus goes to heaven in spite of what their material lives seemed to indicate Beatitudes or blessing statements are talking about spiritual circumstances. You will be content uh, in your spiritual circumstance, not necessarily in your physical outward circumstance. That is the, the false nature of the prosperity gospel. As we mentioned before, the only people who get prosperous from that are the, the <laughs> leaders of the various churches who teach that way. So the rich man is a great example of a person who is not blessed spiritually, but was materially. Uh, Paul is a perfect example of the latter, someone who was not necessarily blessed materially, but obviously was spiritually content. 
Of course, of course he was. Uh, he learned to live uh, dependent upon God and be spiritually blessed in spite of his outward circumstances. Paul in Philippians 4.11, he says, Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. In verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul can carry on in any circumstance of life because he is fully dependent upon Christ and the strengthening that comes from him. This isn't, uh, Philippians 4.13 is not a verse that, you know, I can bench press 400 pounds because Christ is doing it for me. Often mis, uh, <laughs> misapplied, of course, is of course speaking of uh, spiritual things. Nowhere in Scripture is the church or our believers promised great circumstances in this life. That is false doctrine to think that it is. In fact, we're promised exactly the opposite thing. If we're promised anything, we're promised to suffer if we are godly. 2 Timothy 3.12 The church in Smyrna Way back in uh, Revelation 2, I believe, either 2 or 3, I think it's 2, they were promised that they were going to be imprisoned. That's not what we typically think of as being uh, spiritually blessed. Every one of the blessing statements or beatitudes that's found in the book of Revelation has to do with spiritual satisfaction. Blessed, right in the very beginning, Revelation 21 and verse 3 speaks of this concept. Revelation 1, 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Clearly, Jesus isn't saying, or the Holy Spirit isn't saying to John here, uh, oh, you're going <laughs> to, man, if you just read the book of Revelation and heed the things that are found there, you'll never lose your job. You never will uh, need food. Your retirement fund is always going to be perfect. You're going to be blessed. I mean, it says it right there. If we'll just do that. Obviously, that isn't what is being spoken of. You will receive spiritual contentment if you read and hear the words of this book and heed the things which are written in it. You will be spiritually content, spiritually satisfied. And every one of these blessing statements is very similar to that. Some of them have to do with believing or trusting in Christ, these uh, blessing statements that you see on the screen there. And some of them have to do with obedience. There will come some sort of spiritual contentment or spiritual blessing in your life if you obey the things that we, uh, the things that are written in these blessing statements. And so here in this one, blessed are those who wash their robes. This is the idea of transferred righteousness that we have uh, studied before. 
And the idea is the washing of their robes. It doesn't really come across. Blessed are those who are the ones who are washing their robes. So that's why a a truly word-for-word translation of the Bible would get a little wordy, to say the least. That's one of the complaints that people have about the NASB that it get, it's so literal or word for word that it gets a little hard to understand sometimes. Well, it could be even worse, <laughs> actually. Blessed are the ones who are those who are washing their robes. It's a present active participle, actually, there, the, the word that's translated as wash in verse 14. So it has this idea of the ones who, are, who have these robes who are that are being washed, and we shouldn't get uh, too uh, lost in the concept here that is trying to be uh, transmitted to us. I have the the mention, uh, well, I guess I don't have it on the screen, but if you have a King James or a New King James, it says, do his commandments in there. And that's a little, that's kind of uh, suspect, according to the experts in this field, at any rate, the uh, the most likely thing that was written down by John is the mentioning of the the washing of the robes and not the do his commandments or are doing his commandments. This is what's known as a textual variant in the in the seminary speak anyway, and the the idea is that. Uh, it has to do with the the washing that takes place when we trust in Christ. This is the trusting in the blood of the Lamb, like it says in Revelation 7 and 14, where it says, I said to him, my Lord, you know, when John is being questioned about this great uh, mass of people that he sees who have come out of the tribulation, He doesn't know who they are. Uh, The angel says to him, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And this is mentioning the same thing here in Revelation 22 and verse 14. Blessed are those who have had their robes washed by the blood of the Lamb. And we've seen it many times many times that this is that Christ is the one who does the washing the the concept that is trying to be communicated here is blessed are those who have the white robes it's not necessarily the process that is that is being discussed here so it's not we aren't the ones doing the washing that's that's the the main issue they are washed by the blood of the Lamb. And this is true throughout the Scriptures. Christ is the one who does the saving, as it says in Titus 3.5. He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently 
so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. So we have both aspects. Both the requirements are mentioned there. God doesn't just save people uh, willy-nilly, or he doesn't have a a select group who are saved and and another group over here who are going to be cast aside. The salvation is available to all because Jesus Christ is the one who died for our sins. God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, shed his perfect blood for the sins of the world. And now, since salvation is available to all people, any person can believe it so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. It says there in Titus 3.8, the end goal is to, for believers to act righteously, to be holy because God is holy. And we're to be motivated by that because God is the one who's done the saving, as it talks about in the uh, Titus 3 through 8. Five, Titus 3, 5 through 8. Christ does the saving. Our portion of that is to believe. We have to believe in order to be saved. It's not our, our good works. Aren't, we're not cleaning ourselves up by our good works. We're trusting in the cleaning that has been done by Christ on the cross. That's what our uh, old chart here is that we have seen before, this idea of transferred righteousness. Christ gives His righteousness to us when we trust in Him. Our unrighteousness is transferred to him on the cross. And in exchange, he gives us his righteousness. That's a pretty good, that's a pretty good deal. You ought to take that one if you haven't taken it in the past. Because uh, as we have seen, if you still have your unrighteousness on you, if that has not been transferred to the cross of Jesus Christ through trusting in what he did there for you, you're going to be judged because of that unrighteousness that is still on you. We haven't gotten there yet, but that's why it says in verse 15, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the liars and and the like, because they haven't transferred their unrighteousness to Christ. But it's available to you. It's available there because Christ died for the sins of the world. And, and if you're an unbeliever, you're saying, no, I, I've got that. I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll wash it off myself. I'll ignore that there is a God and he created me and he wants me to be a saved person. I just won't think about that. Instead, I'll think about the baseball game or uh, any number of things. I just will put it out of my mind and I won't consider it. That's your choice. (laughs) One day, you're going to stand before a holy God and he's going to judge you on the basis of your works because you haven't transferred them to Christ on the cross. And so that's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That verse explains this great transaction, as it has been called. 
perfectly, or this, this chart is trying to explain or giving you a visual of that verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21. Our guilt is credited to Christ on the cross. He can take it because he is eternal God. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's perfect God. He's eternal God. He can take on the sins of the world upon himself because he is eternity. He's everything embodied. It's hard to, hard to imagine that there is such a being, but that's who Christ is. He took all the sins upon himself so that we, humanity, could become the righteousness of God in Christ so that we could enjoy the blessings of the eternal state that we're learning about in Revelation 22. That this, the eternal state is only possible with this. The only way that you can be in is if you have done this. You have transferred your sin and guilt to Christ by trusting in what he was doing there on your behalf. And when you do that, he credits his righteousness to us. And that's what the statement is here in verse 14. Blessed are those who have done this. Blessed are those who have trusted in Christ and his work for you on the cross. And there is a great benefit to that when you do, when you make that transaction, you have rights to something, as is mentioned in the second half of verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. That first uh, word there of the, the second half of the verse, so that, it's actually two words in the English. It's one in the Greek. If you want to sound like you went to seminary, you call that a hina clause. Uh, because that's the, the Greek term is hina there that is translated as so that. It's simply just a, a, an indicator that something is the result of something else. Blessed are those who have who are washing their robes in the blood of Christ, essentially. Uh, and the reason why they're blessed is because they may have the right to the tree of life and to enter by the gates. Believing in Jesus Christ gives you rights. He gives you the rights. Just like our uh, God-given rights in America... Uh, and really throughout the world, are enumerated in the Constitution. We just happen to be blessed, spiritually blessed, to live in a country that at its founding, at any rate, was founded on the principle that God has given rights to humanity. Those rights don't come from Washington, D.C. They certainly don't come from Lansing. They come from God. And our founding documents recognize that fact. That's wonderful. And I would make the case that that is the reason why America has been the place to live for the last 250 years, because it is a place that recognizes that our rights come from God. They don't come from the government. They come from God, 
and are guaranteed by the Constitution. There, there is a gigantic difference between living in a place where your rights are given to you by the government and one that recognizes that they actually come from God. That's a little bit of a tra- uh, rabbit trail, just some extra there for you. Uh, we, as believers, have something that's even better than that. As believers in Jesus Christ, we have rights to the tree of life, and to enter into the new Jerusalem, the eternal state, by way of the gates. Uh, And the reason why we have those rights is because our robes have been washed by the blood of Christ. And again, here we kind of have a translational uh, issue. It actually says that in the original that you have authority over the tree of life, which is simply just a way of saying that you will have access to the tree of life. Notice very closely the tense of the word, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and to enter by the gates. It is future tense. This isn't something that we have now. Yes, we have eternal life, you trust in Jesus Christ, you pass from life into, or from death into life. Uh, there's no going back. You trust, you believe, you are a saved person, you have 100% assurance of your salvation. We'll see that later. Uh, but access to the tree of life is something that will happen in the future and, and entering into The city by way of the gates is something that will happen in the future. Uh, This isn't something that we necessarily have right now. This is not a rep. This is not something that you may see in commentaries that this, oh, this is just representing the church and you have access to eternal life now through the ministries of the church and this kind of thing. No, this is future tense. This is something that will happen after the church is no more. This is something that will happen after the kingdom period, the thousand-year kingdom period. This is something that will happen in the eternal state where we will have access to the tree of life, which is denied to us now, has been denied to humanity since all the way back in Genesis 3.22 after sin. Genesis 3.22, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. There's something to this tree. What exactly is it? I don't know. This is the information we have. You eat from that tree, you can live forever Verse 23 of Genesis 3, Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. That barrier, that protection of the tree of life is removed in the eternal state, this is the reversing of the curse that is over the world right now. And this will take place in the future. It hasn't happened yet. There are steps 
in the process, in God's process of having us live with him in perfect harmony forever. And this will take place in the future, in the eternal state after the kingdom period, after the church age ends, after the tribulation, after uh, Christ comes again to the earth and establishes his kingdom, after the thousand years, then we move into the eternal state. Then, according to these verses, we will have access to the tree of life. As I mentioned before, Christ is making all things new, Revelation 21.5. Paul talked about this in Colossians. Colossians 1.19, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him in Christ, all the fullness of deity to dwell in Christ, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself. How was He going to be able to do that? Having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Christ is, God is reversing the curse so much so that we will have access to the tree of life in the future eternal state. And we also have the right to enter by way of the gates, it says there in verse 14, and may enter by the gates into the city. I can't help but mention again, uh, as is often the, uh, the joke, you know, whatever, the rabbi and the priest show up at the pearly gates and there's Peter standing there. That's uh, The joke always begins that way. And, and that, those kinds of things can get locked into our, to our brains and our, in our thinking like, oh, we're going to show up at the pearly gates and Peter is going to be there. Well, that, well that's actually completely contrary to uh, what the scriptures say. Peter isn't going to be the one who decides whether or not you get into heaven. And there is actually not just one gate we've seen. There are 12 gates, and each one of them is an individual pearl, as is described here in uh, Revelation 21. And Peter isn't there, according to the scriptures. Angels are there, if you'll remember that. Uh, I don't, now nah, I, I won't try to find it now, but there's actually an angel at each gate uh, th- that is made out of a pearl. And so uh, what we have here is a reminder that there is a narrow way into this eternal state. Jesus mentions that this narrow gate in uh, Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount, later after the Beatitudes. He talks about several things there. Uh, Matthew seven thirteen, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many, many who enter through it. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters. And the list is endless of the, the sins that are uh, mentioned that are still on people, keeping them out of perfect fellowship with God. Very narrow is the way into the city. Very narrow is the way into fellowship with God today and in the future. That way is very narrow. 
It's often said that all roads lead to God, all paths lead to God, and in one aspect, that is, that is very true. That is, it's completely true. All paths do lead to God. Only one of those paths is going to lead you into permanent fellowship with God. As we've seen in the book of Revelation, all people are going to give an account to God uh, for the way that they've lived, and everybody is going to uh, stand before him and be judged. Do you want to be judged on the basis of having the transferred righteousness of Jesus Christ? Or do you want to take your chances with your own uh, brand of righteousness? Your own brand of righteousness is the wide gate. A lot of people make that decision. They, they, want, they can pick their own way, Hinduism, Islam, uh, name the religion, name the eighth version of being an atheist. All of them are going to lead to God. He's going to judge you. Only the people who enter through the narrow gate are going to get in. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Verse 14, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Matthew seven thirteen through 14. In fact, Jesus is the gate. He is the only way into the Father. Our scripture reading this morning, John 10, 7, Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. If anyone enters through Christ, he will be saved. It cannot possibly be any more clear that there is only one way to salvation. There's many ways to God, but there's only one way to be made right and to be saved, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. John fourteen six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Only Christ, very black and white. Are you in or are you out? Are you in through faith and trust in Christ and what he did for you? Or are you out through every other way? There's only one way. God is very selective. God is very narrow-minded, to use a 21st century uh, terminology. Yes, I hope we're all very narrow-minded in our thinking God's way according to the scriptures it's not we need to embrace these kinds of things don't be shamed into thinking oh you're so narrow-minded praise the Lord yes I am I am very narrow-minded there is one way to be made right in God's eyes and it is through faith in Jesus Christ he is the only way first Timothy 2 1 through 6 Notice what is important to Paul in his letter to Timothy, one of the last letters that Paul wrote. Uh, in fact, you, you typically you have a tendency to write the things that are really on your heart when you're coming to the end of your life. First and Second Timothy and Titus are three of those 
letters from Paul, he says, first of all, that should get our attention. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority so that there's one of those Hina clauses. We may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. When we live in a peaceable society, it's easy for us to be able to give the gospel to people. You can do it in in a tranquil, quiet life and give people the gospel. That sounds pretty good. Unfortunately for us, we don't have a tendency as humans to be uh, obedient in those circumstances. And so God sends difficulty to us. And the church throughout history has tended to flourish when times are difficult. So uh, pray for your leaders. Pray that we could have a tranquil and quiet life. And then don't sit back on your laurels. Be obedient and do something for the Lord. Because God wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Verse 5 of 1 Timothy 2. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. There is one way, a very, very narrow gate. And that is what we have the rights to. Through that very narrow gate, we have right the right to enter into eternal bliss with God. That narrow gate, of course, is Jesus Christ and trusting in him alone. And if you do not trust in him, you will be ruled out. Uh, Verse 15, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. This is what is known as uh, a vice list, if you will, and we'll get into some of those others, some of the other vice lists here shortly. But when we see that outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and so on, this is a reference to the lake of fire. We we may have in our mind's eye a picture of this incredible city with walls and a gate and the dogs and sorcerers and everybody else are kind of like scratching at the walls to try to get in or something like that. No, they're they're completely separated. We've already seen that, that they have been cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20 uh, verses 11 through 15 describe the great white throne judgment where these people will be judged because they have not trusted in Christ, so they still have their sin upon them. They will be judged. They will be judged according to their deeds, it says there, because they didn't put their deeds onto Christ on the cross when he was dying for them. They, they would not trust in that, so their deeds are still upon them. 
Verse 14 of Revelation 20, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is what Jesus referred to only about three or four times. We have this phrase, outer darkness in the scriptures. That is a that is the same term outside of the eternal state, cast into the lake of fire, out of darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is all, those are all describing the same thing, this state of being for people who have not trusted in Christ where they will be for eternity, completely separated from God. That's why it's called the second death. As we've mentioned before, that's what death is. It is a, a separation And so they died physically first. Their spirit is separated physically from their body. That's the first death. Then they will be judged there at the end of the thousand year kingdom. Their works will still be upon them and they will be cast into the lake of fire or outer darkness. Matthew 8, 11 through 12. uh, It's mentioned 22, 11 through 13 and 25. 29 through 30, all in the book of Matthew, we have this statement of outer darkness. And there's somewhat of a controversy within uh, dispensationalism, if you will, about uh, what exactly that means. There are varying views on outer darkness. uh, And there are some very extreme viewpoints that some may have. Not, Not very many people have the viewpoint that Outer darkness is uh, what's been termed Protestant purgatory, where unfaithful believers will go into outer darkness during the kingdom period, and then they'll essentially pay for their sins and then be uh, allowed into the eternal state. That's a very minority viewpoint. Won't go into into all the details there, but uh, nevertheless... The fact of the matter is the scripture says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our sins have been put completely upon uh, Christ by way of faith in him. And so therefore we can trust that we will be with God and Christ in the kingdom period in some, in some measure. We're not going to be excluded from the kingdom because Christ is the one who has paid for our sins. But that brings up some of these verses, the viceless, like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Well, what do you have to say about this? Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swinders will inherit the kingdom of God. And after all, Paul is writing this to a church, and he even says later, such were some of you. Uh, what about that? They, they've got some of these problems. We, you can read 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5. He just mentions uh, incest that's taking place in the church. 1 Corinthians 11, they had, they're showing up drunk at the Lord's table. I mean, these are some, you think we have issues in the church today, and we most certainly do. These folks had some issues as well. And do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Uh, 
Galatians chapter 5. He didn't just write it to the Corinthians. He wrote this to the Galatians. Galatians 5.19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger. Uh Uh-oh. I had some outbursts of anger on the way home on Friday from work. Disputes, dissensions, factions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. I, I've done some of those things. Lie, I've, I've told lies, I'm ashamed to admit. Uh, does that mean I'm in trouble? Because notice what he says, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he goes on to the, the fruit of the Spirit and, and the wonderful things that, of course, we, all, we are always like this, right, as believers. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. Ah, oh, that's, I mean, he's describing me. Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. The whole point of these lists are to say, this is why God is going to judge the world. As a believer, do not live like that. He's not saying if you ever committed a lie since you've believed or you've ever engaged in drunkenness or envying or carousing or being jealous. Has anybody ever been jealous? Uh, He's not saying you're going to be excluded from the kingdom. He's saying, this is why I'm judging the world and you, believer, don't have a part in that. So stop acting like it. Don't act like unbelievers. Act like believers who should be, uh, have the fruit of the Spirit. Be joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good. These kinds of things. That when you're, you can essentially test yourself as a believer. I wonder if I'm walking by means of the Spirit as I'm engaging in strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, uh, and these kinds of things. Uh, yeah, the answer is no. You're not, if you find yourself engaging in these sorts of activities, you're not walking by means of the Spirit. You're not walking by the tools that God in His grace has given to you to be holy because He is holy. That's His desire for you. He's given you every tool for you to be able to do that. So do it, essentially, is what Paul is saying. And furthermore, God's going to judge the world because of these things. And so don't uh, live as the unbelievers do. Instead, be holy because God is holy. And then notice, again, we have this vice list as well, outside of the dogs in verse 15. The sorcerers and the immoral persons and the uh, murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. This is the reason why they are being judged that we mentioned uh, earlier there at the great white throne judgment. They did not go through this incredible transaction that God has available for us. Simply trust in Christ. He'll take your guilt. He'll take your sin. In exchange, he will give you his righteousness. 
uh, and we've seen that this isn't an all-inclusive list here. It's not just these various sins. We have other sins mentioned in twenty verse uh, chapter 21, verse 8. The cowardly, that's number one on that list, cowardly. I mean, we don't typically think of that as being an issue. The cowardly, unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. That's what is being described here. And uh, when we notice this list, (laughs) this probably ought to get our attention about things that are going on in this world today. When he says dogs, you know, I'm kind of a dog person. And so uh, most people in the Middle East are not dog people, though. And make no mistake, this is written to this Eastern kind of audience and and, uh, even into Turkey and these kinds of things. They saw dogs kind of different than we do today. Dogs, when I think of a dog, I think of my little French bulldog and he's nice and, you know, that kind of thing. When Middle Eastern people and people from the first century think of dogs, they think of packs of dogs who are dangerous and will harm you uh, if they get the chance. They'll steal your food, they'll bite you, they'll do some sort of uh, injury to you. And that's what these people are. This term, the dogs, is often uh, not just unbelievers. I mean, there's kind of two categories of unbelievers, if you will. Uh, There are unbelievers, and then there are unbelievers who, who mean to do harm to you. There's some kind of people are just, you know, floating through life, and oh, well, yeah, I never really thought about that. And then there's other people who want to tear you down. That's who these people are, uh, the dogs. They mean to do harm. And you know, America, in our history, we've probably, in reality, probably always been majority unbeliever. I, I guess, I don't, I don't know. I haven't done a study on that. But there's narrow is the way. Few are those who find it. So there's a pretty good chance that we've always been majority unbeliever. Nevertheless, our country was founded on godly principles. There's a big difference between an unbeliever who recognizes that there is a God. Yeah, he probably created the world. I ought to be going to church, but you know, I've got other things to do or, or whatever. That's kind of the way America was founded and had been, has been in our history until, boy, 50 years ago or so, maybe 60, it began to start to transition where the unbelievers are now the ones who are fully and firmly in charge of this place. Whereas before, great uh, believers in the past had a great influence over our country. You think of even in our lifetime, Billy Graham and and, uh, these kinds of people, Uh, D.L. Moody, the Wesleys, and uh, uh, some of our founders, born-again Christians, no doubt doubt about it. Times have changed. The dogs have taken over. Unbelievers who mean to do harm are those who are in charge. And this is why we see such an anti-God, anti-Christian kind of aura that is just surrounding us uh, in our once great nation. 
And according to this passage, these kinds of dogs and many others are the people that are going to be excluded from the kingdom and from the eternal state unless they believe. Salvation is available to them. Why? Because God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, and they can have it through the one mediator who is between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. They can have salvation. But notice this list. It says the dogs and the sorcerers and immoral persons and murderers and idolaters and all those who are lying. I, this is reading like the uh, Apple News <laughs> when we see the sins that are in uh, mentioned in various news articles. Sorcery is actually the term uh, pharmakia. We get our term pharmacy from. Uh, have you noticed that you can't walk outside the house and smell pharmakia in Michigan. And I'll tell you, it's everywhere in the country. Uh, Pretty much everywhere. Not everywhere, but pretty much any and everywhere you go, drugs are pervasive, literally being used on the street. Some cities, New York City, saw an article the other day, New York City has vending machines for drug paraphernalia on the streets. Sorcery is the way it was uh, translated pharmakia. There has never been a time, I don't believe, in world history where drug use was more pervasive than it is today. The uh, the medicine men of Native American religion and, and uh, pagan religions, they used narcotics to have their visions and this kinds of thing, but it's nothing like it is today. And not just narcotics, but people are addicted to painkillers. Your doctor wants to give you some kind of uh, pharmaceutical to heal your problem. Oh, it causes, oh, doc, it causes this problem. Oh, don't worry, I've got another pill for you to take. Uh, and the, the list is, is endless. Immorality, Immorality, I'd like to say that it's unprecedented. It might be unprecedented in America, but it's not unprecedented uh, throughout history. There's nothing new under the sun, as it says in Ecclesiastes. In fact, it would be in, it's interesting to read about uh, the various worship that took place of the pagan gods in the past, particularly their female uh, deities, the priests of the female deities. You can read about the priests of Sibylle, for example, attested to very early on. You can read about Augustine speaking of these priests of Sibylle, uh, who was a Roman goddess, who had said that the, the priests would castrate themselves and then wear women's clothes for the rest of their lives. Now, did they actually castrate themselves? Uh, it's questionable, but they did wear women's clothes forever. And you can see this in their artwork and you can read all about it. So uh, th- there's nothing new. Isn't that encouraging? Uh, and I found this interesting. Jehu, Second Kings chapter 10, kind of an obscure place. You don't normally go to Second Kings 10 when you're studying Revelation. But nevertheless, it's kind of interesting. The prophets of Baal, when you read read this and think about it in context of like what's going on today and with these priests of Sibylle. Uh, 
Jehu is he had he was on fire to get rid of Baal worship in Israel in Judah and so he did this one good thing he's not recognized as a good king but he did this one good thing he wanted to get rid of the the worshipers of Baal so he called a praise service if you will invite all the worshipers of Baal here and the plan is to kill them when they when they show up and he did exactly that 2 Kings 10, 20, Jehu said, sanctify a solemn assembly for Baal, and and they proclaimed it. Then Jehu sent throughout Israel, and all the worshipers of Baal came, so that there was not a man left who did not come. And when when they went into the house of Baal, the house of Baal was filled from one end to the other. Verse 22, he said to the one who was in charge of the wardrobe, bring out garments for all the worshipers of Baal. So he brought out garments for them. And so, you know, you, I don't know exactly what that was. It was some sort of imitation, I'm sure, or uh, God had specific garments for the priests to wear. This was, I'm sure, some kind of twisting of that. These priests of Sibylle, uh would wear women's clothes for the rest of their lives. I, In my mind, I think... I, drag queen story hour. Have you seen those people that they're look, dressed like literally look like demons? Maybe that's what this was in Second Kings. I don't know. But at any rate, immorality is running rampant in this world today. Murders, uh, think abortion. They're, sorry, that's a life and you're ending it. Uh, if you're having an abortion or paying for abortions, these kinds of things. It's not just the women. Uh, It takes two to do something like that, Uh, let alone the rampant murder that is literally taking place across America's cities. 76 people shot in Chicago last weekend alone. One weekend, 76 people shot. A lot of murderers running around. Liars, those who love and practice lying. Do you follow politics? Both sides of the aisle, I pretty much fed up with it. Both sides lie through their teeth without hesitation. Idolatry, watch the opening ceremony of any sporting event, the Olympics, uh, some sort of thing at the UN. I mean, it's, it, is, it is out there. It is right there for you to see. It's on full display. And these people are going to be excluded from the eternal state. They're excluded from the kingdom. They're excluded from the eternal state. So do not live like them. That is the admonition from Paul, from John, from the scriptures, uh, from me, (laughs) to myself, to you, to everybody. Don't live like that. 1 Peter 1.10, we'll end with this. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels longed to look into. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, 
but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So are you in or are you out? Have you washed your robes in the blood of Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in him for your salvation? You have rights to the tree of life in the future. You will enter into life in perfect obedience or perfect, uh, perfect fellowship with the perfect God who created you. So let's get ourselves on the right track and start living like it. Don't live like the ones who are ruled out. Be holy because God is holy. And let's go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. I thank you for the book of Revelation that is so uh, relevant to us today. It is so uh, amazing when we see the things that are written about uh, 2,000 years ago that are speaking of future judgment that is going to come on to the world and we see these things, the stage being set for them to happen today. We see the rampant immorality and... Uh, degradation that is all around us. May we not be influenced by it. May we be people who are living in obedience to you each moment of the day and are being, uh, being led by the Spirit to be holy because you are holy. And we will give you all of the praise and the glory as you do this work in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.